0: Please turn with me in your copy of Word, in your copy of God's Word to Acts, chapter nineteen. There is a boo-boo in the bulletin that I did not catch. Uh, we are not repeating the same passage we did last week. Uh, we'll go ahead, one verse. Uh, we're going to read verses twenty-one through forty-one. Uh, Doctor D- Donald Gray Barnhouse was the longtime minister at Tenth Presbyterian Church in. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is a master illustrator. Um, So many pastors lean upon him, and I I will do so as well this morning. And Dr. Barnhouse tells a story about a beautiful spring day. It's clear and calm. The sun is shining. The winter wind is gone. And he's walking along this tree-lined road and he begins to notice something unexpected for spring. Leaves were falling. Now, we're used to that now. We, We see that all the time at this time in the year, but not for the spring. And he sees this leaf fall right next to him, and he picks it up, and he held it in his hand, and it was dead and dry, so much so that he could rub it between his hands and the leaf just disintegrated and the little stem was left. I'm sure you've, you've had that happen before. Well, he noticed that this was not the only leaf falling. There were others. It wasn't raining leaves, but he saw others falling and he wondered for a moment, why was this happening? These, it was a beautiful day. It wasn't autumn. Uh, the wind wasn't blowing. These, these leaves that had stubbornly clung to the branches all winter, these leaves that had survived the biting cold and the frost and the snow were now seemingly falling without cause. And I don't know if he thought about this in the moment or later, But he said, I realized that the most potent force of all was causing them to fall. It was spring. The sap was beginning to run. The buds were beginning to push from within. From down beneath the dark earth, the roots were taking life and sending it along trunk, branch, and twig until that life expelled every bit of deadness that had remained from the previous year. It was, as a great Scottish preacher termed it, the expulsive power of a new affection. That Scottish preacher was Thomas Chalmers. What's Dr. Barnhouse getting at? He's speaking of the new life that a Christian has in Christ. And how that new life, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, it's not you trying harder. It is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it begins deep inside us with a changed heart, but it doesn't stay deep inside. It works its way outward. And what happens as it does? The leaves fall off. Those leaves of sin, that that deadness, that remains of the old life apart from Christ falls away. Uh, Those things are expelled by this new life working its way through us. Now the theological term for this is Sanctification. The believer is called by the Lord and regenerated, given new life, born again, given a new heart. God's word and spirit dwell in them. And what happens? The grip and power of sin is weakened and destroyed. This is what is happening in Ephesus, isn't it? I mean, you remember what we've seen so far. Paul is in Ephesus. He's ministering there for two years. People are coming to faith. Lives are being changed. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're extolling the name of Jesus. And what did we see last week? You we saw dead leaves falling away. They're confessing sin. They're divulging and revealing their... Occult, secret practices. They're burning books, valuable books, that were used by those who practiced magic and all sorts of things. But they destroy them because they're offensive to God. This new life is coursing through the church in Ephesus and the old is being driven out. Paul speaks of this when he writes to the Ephesians. He says, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air." Oh, I was always a little confused there, I'm doing some research for something else right now, and a better translation might be "following the prince of the unseen powers." But Paul continues, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You are by nature children of wrath. He says, Ephesians, that's who you were. Then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Everything that is said before but God, you know, dead in sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of unseen powers, living in just the passions of the flesh, all of that is going to be incrementally forced out due to being made alive with Christ. Now, I'm not teaching Christian perfectionism. You will not be perfect. Every dead leaf will not be removed until he brings you to himself, and you're you're dead. Or Christ returns. One of those two. But there is a principle here of new life driving out the old. And so just the question that I'm going to use to guide this long narrative is what should we expect when this happens when new life drives out the old when new life causes the previous deadness to fall away what should we expect and that's what we're going to look at today but first let's pray and then we'll read our text blessed lord you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may, in such a way, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul... And the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocris, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then, that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This new growth, And the planting of the Ephesian church has Paul thinking that it might be time to move on from Ephesus. Go back to Jerusalem, probably for Passover, and then on to Rome. But before he can leave, an incident occurs. And we get back to that question. What should we expect when the leaves fall away, when new life is driving out old deadness. And the first thing we should expect is hostility from the unbelieving world. I was reminded of Washington, D.C. Lots of people go to D.C. to see historic sites and big, beautiful buildings and monuments, uh, to go to museums. And you can buy... So many souvenirs. In the museums, on the mall, on the mall, there, there are food trucks everywhere where you can get food. You can buy hats and shirts and umbrellas and miniature copies of the Constitution. Everything is red, white, and blue. Everything Star-Spangled Banner. Um, and there's a lot of vendors there who make their living off of Tourists who are coming to the capital to see the sights and buy the souvenirs. And I had the thought, what would happen if uh, tourism just stopped? If it just dried up, what would happen to those vendors? And really, it's not a foreign question at all, because you could ask them, how is 2020 and how is 2021? And they would be able to, they'd be able to tell you. Well, something similar happens in Ephesus. The attraction is the temple of Artemis. Artemis is the Greek goddess of fertility. And you might know, might know her by her uh, Roman name, which was Diana. And this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But this is no small deal Uh, We're talking about um, there's a man named Antipater of Sidon, and he's the one who composed the earliest list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he wrote this, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots and on the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids. And the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marbles lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. This is This is a big deal. I think this was, I read this was the largest building in existence at the time on planet Earth. The whole thing was made of marble. It stood 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet tall. The temple was supported by 127 marble columns. And the Ephesians were very proud of this temple. People would travel from all over to see it, just like people will travel to D.C. to see its sites. People would come to Ephesus, and there were plenty of vendors surrounding this wonder of the world, hawking their wares. And one of them, Luke introduces to us, was named Demetrius. We're told he was a silversmith. He made shrines of Artemis that were sold to the tourists. But what's the issue? Business has dried up. You have this economy in Ephesus that apparently is dependent upon idolatry. And it crashes. And it crashes because people have stopped going to the temple. And they've stopped buying these silver shrines of Artemis. And why would they do that? Well, because they've been converted. They know the true and living God. They know that he is not worshipped with idols, as, as we read this morning in our catechism. What does Demetrius say? He says, this Paul has turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Yeah, they aren't. And the word has brought light and understanding to Ephesus. Christ is being extolled. And so these former tourists and customers have lost their interest in Artemis and her shrines. They aren't buying it anymore. And so people like Demetrius have their livelihoods threatened because of this. I mean how like how amazing is this? I I imagine Paul coming before presbytery just to give a report on the church plant there in Ephesus. And him saying, "Yeah, well, I mean this past year was pretty good for us. I mean the the idol makers in town actually rioted because everyone quit buying their junk. The word of God took hold in the hearts of the people. Their affections changed. The way they talk changed. The way they live changed. The way they spent their money changed. So much so that there's a riot. What we see here is Christians handling their money as Christians. New life changing their spending habits. Those old leaves of buying shrines and worshiping at this gl—this grand temple. They've fallen away. And something else has taken their place. So this sparks hostility. Demetrius is not happy about this. Uh, Calvin notes the greed of Demetrius. It's really wild. And honestly, I mean, not all that unfamiliar. We know humanity. He says... Uh, Demetrius, he's so greedy, he would incite a riot and trouble the whole city just for the sake of his own gain. That's what happens. Think. I want you to think about our context. What What would this look like? We'll start with the easy ones. The most obvious ones. How, how wonderful would it be if pornographers began to riot and protest because people quit paying for their images and videos or to be relevant to 2022? How wonderful would it be if OnlyFans creators, and I say creators in air quotes, What if your OnlyFans creators began to riot because their subscribers quit paying them? Now, I gave you those obvious ones just to let your guard down. Now, I'm coming in for you. I think we can all agree there is music we enjoy that is not Christ-exalting and edifying to your soul. I'm not saying burn your rock and roll albums and only listen to K-Love. I wouldn't be listening to the radio if that was the case. That's not what I'm saying. But there is music that is not edifying to our soul. What if musicians begin to throw fits because Christians quit giving them their money? Think about the things we watch. Our movies, our shows, the different things we run to that entertain us. Think about those particularly that are not not edifying to your soul. What would it look like if the directors, the producers, the writers all started throwing fits? Terribly angry that Christians were not giving their money to them. Or what if this is just, um, this was just a, this has been a burr under my saddle since youth ministry. I'm sorry. It just comes out over and over and over again. What if parents told their children's coach, sorry, coach, we won't be at the ball field on Sunday morning for the tournament. We'll be worshiping with the body of Christ. What if you had a bunch of coaches? stomping and in a bad mood because they don't have enough kids to play their tournament because the children are in worship and not on the ball field. We we could go on and on here. You get it. The point is that the Christian life should be subversive to a pagan society. The Christian life should be subversive to a pagan economy. Why would we subsidize wickedness and unbelief? Why would we financially prop up those who make a living offending God? I want to remind you, God called you to himself. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you've done, but because he loved you and it pleased him to save you. He has saved you by grace. He has adopted you as his child. He has provided redemption for you through the blood of his son. He has forgiven your sin. He has lavished upon you wisdom and insight. You have obtained an inheritance. You've heard the word of truth. You've believed in him. You've been sealed with the promised spirit, the Holy Spirit who guarantees your inheritance. And I remind you because with all that being true, how could it possibly make sense to continue frequenting the temple of Artemis and purchasing those little silver shrines? It makes no sense. Believer, there is new life in you. So, as James writes, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Something, something to think about. What are some dead leaves currently clinging to the church that need to fall to the ground? You'll notice, I'm not talking about everyone out there. I'm talking about us. What are dead leaves that need to fall to the ground? The church in Ephesus quit spending her money on idolatry and it caused a riot. The pagan economy was undermined. They weren't buying that trash anymore. And the reaction was explosive. This new life brought about hostility. What else should we expect? We should expect to be upheld and sustained by our sovereign God who loves us. This is what we see. Paul was not afraid. He wanted to address the mob, but they wouldn't let him. He would have, but they said, no, if you go in there, it could go badly for you. They, they would not let him go. A couple others, Gaius and Aristarchus, are brought in before the screaming mob, mob and yet they had... Peace I was reminded of Isaiah twenty six three. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. You hear that? The person whose mind is stayed on God and trusts in God is kept. In perfect peace. They aren't earning perfect peace. They aren't accomplishing a perfect peace. They are kept in perfect peace. We see a confidence here. Those who are trusting in the Lord. They're confident because they know that they're at peace with him. And not only are they at peace with him, but he is in total control of this Situation. That's what we see. God uses this clerk, this town clerk, to quiet the crowd and dismiss everyone. This riot that appeared like it could turn into a dangerous a storm was diffused. I want to quote Calvin again. Uh, He says, uh, The Lord upholds the ministers of his word when they are tossed about, testifying that he holds the helm of his church and he is also the governor and moderator of all storms and can stop them as soon as he sees fit. You know, you might read that God is the moderator of a, Storm and governs it, and that might not mean much to you. You should come to Presbytery with me. And there is one man standing up front behind the lectern who is the moderator of that meeting. God is the moderator of storms. Calvin continues So we must sail on through tempestuous seas and put up with a bad reputation even undeserved. Not allowing anything to draw us away from the right course of our duty. Our voyage will be beset by storms, but the Lord will not let us be shipwrecked. We see this narrative end with the total control of God. He uses this local official to... Diffuse the situation. This man stands up and basically says, If you have charges to bring against these men, bring them. But if not, disperse this riot or else charges will be brought against you. So the church is vindicated. Paul and company are not attacked. Their lives are spared and they're able to continue their work. Now we know that not every, uh, not every instance of this hostility ends this way. You can look at church history and be reminded that there are many instances where blood is shed and martyrs are made. But we remember that even in those situations as well, where was the Lord? He was the governor and moderator. He's always there. He's taking what someone intended for evil and leveraging it to the eternal good of his beloved children. So don't be surprised when the old dead leaves fall away and new life is working its way out of your heart. Don't be surprised if you are able to rest and have a peace that you cannot explain. God is on the throne working all things for his glory. This week I read uh, question number 26 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, We read it a number of months ago. You probably don't remember it, but it says this. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? The answer is that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. Now, the answer could end there, and that would be perfectly appropriate. This is why I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It doesn't end there. There's pastoral concern for you. The answer continues. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father Believer, you have an almighty God who is also a faithful father. And in just a moment, we're going to sing about walking through a valley and being sustained in this veil of tears. Because our almighty God and faithful father has given us his peace and his strength and he's given us himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He has not left you alone. There is new life in you. So be glad and bless the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be so. We praise you for the new life, the miracle that you have wrought In us, by your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray for faithfulness. We know that you will be faithful, but we pray for our faithfulness, that we would grow in Christ likeness, that we would pursue obedience, that we would live like those who have been saved by grace. Would our our life reflect the reality of what you have worked inside us. What a wonderful thing that would be not only for us, but for our families, for our church, for our community and world, and how honoring it would be to you. Father, give us the grace to do just this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.